First up, though, we are taking a look at the new details released earlier today, and these are for people who are returning to Canada by air. Well, some of the new details are for land borders as well, but specifically, we now know when that hotel quarantine is going to start. For travelers arriving to Canada by air, as of February 22nd, 2021, all air non-essential travelers will be required to take a COVID-19 molecular test when they arrive in Canada before exiting the airport and another toward the end of their 14-day quarantine period. Air travelers will also be required to reserve prior to departure to Canada a three-night stay in a government-authorized hotel. Travelers will be required to stay at their reserved hotel for up to three nights at their own cost while they await the results of their arrival test. Hotel booking information will be available online as of February 18, 2021. Travelers will need to book a hotel in the city in which they first arrive in Canada. If they receive a negative result on their arrival test, they will be able to take a connecting flight to their final destination. That was Federal Health Minister Patty Haidu speaking earlier today. We're joined now by Jeffrey Rath, barrister and constitutional law expert at Rath & Company. Jeffrey Rath, thanks so much for being with us. Uh, my pleasure. I know you have a client who is not very happy with these incoming rules and challenging them. I'm curious what your response is, though, hearing those new details from the Federal Health Minister in Canada about what is going to be required of people arriving here on an airplane. Well, I mean, as far as far as it goes, they're just they're basically trying to put a dress on a pig by uh, by suggesting that this is voluntary and that you can make reservations to be incarcerated upon your return. Um, the the horror stories that have been coming out of the media in Calgary with regard to people that have already been incarcerated, uh, you know, in Trudeau's so-called hotels, you know, are truly horrifying. People locked in the rooms for. You know, basically 23, you know, uh, you know, 23 hours and 45 minutes a day, only being allowed out for 15 minutes at a time for exercise. Uh, you know, prisoners at the Florence Supermax in Colorado get more yard time than Trudeau's jailers are allowing people to check into these ridiculous hotels. So it's like all of Canada has woken up. We found that we live in eastern Germany and we're no longer allowed to freely leave or enter Canada. Uh, and are being effectively become prisoners in our own country. Uh, You have sorry. Go ahead. No, I said that's. I mean, that's my view and the view of our client with regard to this matter in a nutshell. And you mentioned your client. That uh, I wanted to ask you. You have a client who is currently at a house in the Caribbean on Saint Martin. Uh, traveled when it was advised perhaps not to travel, or or, or people told don't unless you have to. Uh, so your client is going to challenge this. What is that going to look like? First of all, that's certainly not the case. The government doesn't have the right or the authority to advise people, you know, not to exercise their charter rights to freely come and go from Canada as they please. Well, no, uh, I was just saying they, that's what they said. I'm not, I'm not saying whether or not they had the right. Had left Canada, excuse me, my client had left Canada prior to this latest ridiculous advisory that people are going to be incarcerated upon their return to the country. So certainly any suggestion that my country, that my client is somehow to blame for the gross mismanagement of this pandemic by the Trudeau government 
uh, is certainly something that I don't agree with or any suggestion of that. All right. And my apology, I wasn't suggesting that your client is to blame. I, I just mentioned that the government, right or wrong, and whether they have the right to do it or not, they had advised against what they called non-essential travel. I mean, there's even question about what essential travel means, because there hasn't been an actual definition of that either. Well, you know, and, and I guess that's the question. It's, I think a lot of people would like Trudeau to come clean on whether or not he took a Caribbean vacation over Christmas, but I don't think those details are forthcoming either. So uh, it'd be interesting to hear from our prime minister in that regard. What do you say about the argument, and I'm just playing devil's advocate here, but the argument that there are other countries that are also requiring people to, when they come home, when they come back to their country, uh, that do require them to quarantine at their own expense in hotels? Well, my response to that is those other countries don't have a charter of rights and freedoms, and the government in those countries is likely not subject to the Oaks test, which it is in Canada. The government has to justify infringements of constitutionally protected rights. And in this case, the restrictions are completely unjustifiable. In both Alberta and British Columbia, somebody who's symptomatic for COVID-19 is trusted by the government to leave their home, to drive to a testing center, to get tested, to drive themselves to their home, uh, you know, and to uh, you know, voluntarily self-isolate within their homes until the test comes back. And then if the test is positive, to voluntarily quarantine themselves within their homes. There's absolutely no necessity for Trudeau's windowless bans to be whisking people away by his private security force to, to be incarcerated in hotels at the government's pleasure when people can simply go home and self-isolate like the rest of the citizens in the provinces of British Columbia and Alberta are allowed to do. It's completely unnecessary and it's completely unjustifiable under the Oaks test and under Canadian law. Uh, do you anticipate uh, with challenging this uh, with your client in the Caribbean right now, then is your client going to wait it out? Because I guess the, the, the alternative would be come home before February 22nd or wait it out or hope that this challenge overturns it. Well, here's, here's the problem. I mean, the, the announcement today is completely disingenuous because people are currently being incarcerated. It's not the 22nd. It's, you know, there are people being whisked away in windowless vans from the airport in Calgary and locked away for 23 and a quarter hours a day in, uh, in uh, you know, these so-called hotels, which are really incarceration facilities, uh, regardless of this announcement saying it's going to start on the 22nd. So, no, my client doesn't have any uh, security feeling that he can fly freely back to Canada, regardless of the prime minister's announcement today, because clearly the prime minister's announcement today was disingenuous and dishonest to Canadians because he's not admitting that people are already being incarcerated in these facilities. Uh, Do you know how many people, because this is the first I've heard that these rules in Calgary or in Alberta are already taking place? Oh, I don't know if it's the rules are in place. I think what's happening is people are being incarcerated without any rules being in place. There's certainly been reports uh, of, uh, in you know, CBC and in various newspapers in Alberta of people being whisked away from the airport in windowless vans and being locked away in Trudeau uh, incarceration hotels uh, without any legal authority. And that's, that's, that'll likely be the matter of other applications, uh, you know, likely brought on behalf of people that have uh, suffered damages as a result of having been unlawfully detained. So that's the, that's the issue here, is that like the rest of all of Trudeau's pandemic mismanagement, they're making it up as they go along and completely trampling on the rights of Canadian citizens in the process. This is a challenge that you're taking uh, to the federal court. Do you have any idea the timeline or what's going to happen next with this challenge? 
Well, we've intentionally tried to keep the application as simple as possible. And, uh, you know, we're, we're seeking an expedited judicial review in this regard. And certainly we're hoping that we can be in front of a justice of the, uh, uh, of the federal court within 30 days. That's certainly going to be, a, that's certainly our intention, given, given the fact that the rights of every single Canadian have been so grossly infringed by the government of Canada. Uh, and I think the government of Canada needs to stand up in front of a judge sooner rather than later to justify their behavior under the Oaks test, which I think is completely unjustifiable. Uh, so for 30 days or within the next 30 days, um, but uh, I, I assume or I, I guess that your client will stay, isn't going to be coming back in the meantime? Well, I, I don't. I think our client's quite clear on the fact that he doesn't wish to be the, the, uh, subjected to arbitrary incarceration uh, you know, upon his return in Canada. And keep, keep in mind, this, you know, the other issue is you're not necessarily just being incarcerated for three days. If you test positive, they'll keep you for another 14 days. So let's not, you know, this is, you know, potentially a 17-day incarceration. And then with new, uh, uh, you know, with new concerns with regard to the South African variant of COVID or whatever other concerns are floating around, God knows that if somebody were to test positive for, uh, you know, some other variant, they could effectively be incarcerated at Her Majesty's pleasure um, without any justification. So uh, I don't think any sane person would subject themselves to that or trust themselves to be incarcerated in, uh, you know, in a facility of Justin Trudeau's choosing. So would your client be okay, or would you be okay then if the quarantine, if it went back to you have to quarantine at home? Well, those are the current rules, and those are certainly the rules that everybody else is living by. I guess the big question from a justification perspective is, you know, how can the the government justify, how can Justin Trudeau justify incarcerating Canadian citizens in his incarceration hotels when other citizens of provinces are not being subjected to the same, uh, to, you know, to the same level of of their rights, even though they test positive. So I think from a legal perspective, uh, you know, that would be a, a much more difficult case to make than the case that current incarceration procedures are completely unconstitutional. All right. So we're going to watch and see what happens uh, with this case. Uh, thank you so much for making some time for us today. It was my pleasure. Thank you for talking to me. All right. That is Jeffrey Rath, barrister and constitutional law expert at Rath and Company. We're moving on, though, to another topic, and this is one people have plenty of opinions on as well. What to do about the camp, the tent city that is still in Strathcona Park in Vancouver? Well, Insights West has taken a look at that and asked people what they would like to see happen in the park. And joining me to talk more about this is Steve Mossop, who is the president of Insights West. Steve, thanks so much for being with us. Thank you, Joe. Happy to be here. So what exactly did you ask people about? Did you ask about not only what if something should be done, but also what should be done if if action is taken? We did. And that's a difficult issue that I think the the poll tried to address. And we wanted to get a sense of how Vancouverites feel towards it. So we found that universally, um, 85% feel that the, the option is not to do nothing. So if something has to be done. But the preference is really to handle the situation by moving people slowly into affordable housing. We've got about 84% of residents who see that uh, that's the best option. And uh, conversely, a a more hardline approach was agreed to by only half. So about 47% thought that an injunction and having police clear out residents would be a better solution. 
Did the poll also look at the difference between people who are in the park who are homeless, who are vulnerable, compared with others that have been identified as more of a criminal element and not falling under that category of somebody who might need medical services and might be in need of housing? We did ask in a, in a sort of a roundabout way, we did ask people the impact of homelessness on them personally. And we found that, uh, again, the numbers are really high. We've got 88% that say that homelessness is having a direct impact on themselves personally. We've got, uh, and that includes about 30% who say, say it's having a major impact. And the types of things that came back in the poll results there were really, as you uh, pointed out, is more uh, the, the criminal element that uh, to some extent uh, exists in, in, the, in the area. And that's things like vehicle break-ins and uh, petty theft and Uh, homeless people outside of uh, households and and the like. And I know this poll was done, it was conducted, I think, February 5th to the 9th, uh, Vancouver residents. But do you know if the residents are people who themselves live near the park or in that community, or are they all parts of Vancouver? We specifically tackled it by looking at all parts of Vancouver, and then we did a little bit of sub-analysis to look at the different neighbourhood levels. And we're a little bit limited to go right to a neighborhood level. Well, we did see some interesting things happening here where it's, it's not just an issue that's uh, impacting those that live in, say, the east end of Vancouver. We found that equally uh, as high a number of people felt that the impact of the homelessness issue is the downtown issue, not just uh, limited to the eastern parts of the city. The west end is, is, is almost exempt. We have very few people who say that it's impacting them personally, but you get to the downtown core and uh, people are saying it's a major impact on their lives. And the the agreement that we should do nothing, I think, not a huge surprise. Even if you're if you're somebody who hasn't seen it, has never been near that neighborhood, I would I would like to think people have compassion and would get that yes, something needs to be done. Uh, interesting when they when you talk about the, one of the responses the moving people out slowly, uh, because the attorney general has talked about the fact that the reason they don't want to do it bit by bit is the fear that if you start moving people out in smaller groups, more people are going to come in and it's just going to be kind of a revolving door and nothing's going to be done. Is that what people meant, do you think, when they're talking about moving people out slowly? Uh, not so much about the issue of moving them slowly, but they're saying don't move them if there's nowhere to put them. They're just right. going to show up somewhere else. So the issue is more as affordable housing becomes available. We did test a couple of other approaches that we've seen circulating as suggestions, and one of them was allowing residents to stay and, and provide services in the parks, so, such as washroom and showers and warming areas. And about 40% of residents feel that that's a good idea. Um, the other possible approach that we tested was creating smaller alternate tent areas with more services. So not just all in the Strathcona Park, but spacing people out. And uh, 40% also felt that that was a good option. So, you know, there's a number, it's, it's a complex issue and it's difficult to address in in one potential solution. But I think the the results of the poll are showing that there is a compassionate side of Vancouver and Vancouverites who say, let's not just go in there, you know, guns blazing and, and move people out. Let's do it in a thoughtful, compassionate way that allows people to move out slowly. Uh, you also asked people uh, about who they feel is responsible for this. So what level of government? Yes, and that's the complicating factor. We want to see how much people attribute it to the city of Vancouver versus a provincial government responsibility. And about four in ten think that the main responsibility rests with the city of Vancouver. 
uh, and then a further quarter, believe it's a provincial government responsibility. And then there's a small number, 12%, who think it's really just a park board issue. Uh, so it does show that there's very differing opinions as to who should take the initiative and the responsibility for it. Uh, were you surprised at all? It's a very focused study, even though, I mean, the, the issue of homelessness and crime, obviously much bigger issues. But this particular site uh, and park is a much more focused uh, part of what's happening. Were you surprised at all by the results? I think a little bit. Um, you know, it, it's often as a pollster, you you sometimes fearful of the answers that you get because, you know, we've seen it in other instances where, uh, you know, there's a portion of society that maybe is not as compassionate. So I was a bit worried that the poll results would come out and uh, and, and create some challenges there. But really, it's um, the compassionate side has, has, uh, has clearly outweighed that side. So I was pleasantly surprised that we have the results that we have. All right, Steve, we'll leave it there for today. Thanks so much for doing this and for coming on to talk about it. Thank you, Joe. That is Steve Mossop. He's the president of Insights West. Well, we have been talking a lot about what is happening in Strathcona Park and what some of the solutions might look like. We're being told again and again that the people living in the park who are in need of homes and health services will have that by the end of April. But there is now a sign up in the park that is providing for a little bit of optimism that maybe something will happen before then. And joining me on the line to talk a bit more about this is Jamie. McLaren, who is a Strathcona resident as well as a social justice lawyer. Jamie, thanks for coming back on the show. Hi, Jill. Happy to be here. Uh, You tweeted out a picture of a sign that has gone up. So what does it look like? What is happening in the park? Yeah, well, the the park is, it's a big park. Um, And before yesterday, it was completely available for for camping, which meant that not a lot of people in the neighborhood, house residents, used it for, for the usual park purposes. Um, and now there's um, red fencing, tall red fencing, about eight or ten feet tall, um, dividing the park into two parts, uh, east side and west side, and and circling the red fencing circles the the, the larger encampment area um, where Camp KT resides and most of the the tents are. And so the the other portion, according to the sign, is meant to be cleared completely of tents so that everyone can use it for you know the usual recreational purposes and and that that's due to happen by february 17th and so with with this happening and kind of a division in the park how confident are you uh, this will play out and this will lead to some changes well i've been told that the the people who are being displaced from the the uh west side of the park um are are being offered indoor spaces so that obviously makes me happy and I expect it makes the the campers happy as well. Um, You know, there may be some people who still refuse to, to clear that portion of the park, but, but it seems from, from my walk through there and to talking to various campers, including Chrissy Brett, that this is is overall seen as a a positive development. The, the red fencing on the, on the East side around camp KT kind of also serves as extra security for, for that area. Um, Previous to, any fencing going up, people could come and go as they please, and there's sometimes altercations, un- unwelcome visitors coming to you know check in on someone or to uh, you know have some kind of altercation, um, and, and they could just walk to and fro as they wished. And now there's at least big fencing so that the the known exits and entries are, are there and can be monitored. So that that's apparently good from the the camp's perspective, 
and certainly good from the neighborhood's perspective because it it should allow us to start using the park again. Uh, how soon do you think this order, uh, according to the sign, says that it needs to happen by 10 a.m. on February 17th? Uh, how, do you think that that will lead? Is there a, a work that needs to be done? Or how soon do you think uh, people will be able to start using that part of the park again? Well, we've been told that we can start using it immediately. Um, <clears throat> and it still needs to be remediated. So it's, it's a bit odd. They're going to remediate as, as they go. Um, but we, as the you know the wider neighborhood, can use it starting immediately. Um, so, so that's good. I'm not sure exactly how that works. You know, it's it, the, that portion of the park is in better state of repair than the the um, east side where Camp KT resides because it's got more there are more tents on the east side. Um, but the west side is where the dog park is, where the basketball court, the skate park. Um, all the the various things that that people use on a regular basis. So it'll be nice to be able to use those again. And and certainly the the hardscaped, the concrete areas don't need much in the way of of remediation. I mean, it sounds like such a change. Usually when we're talking with you, it's, I mean, last time it was because an arrest had been made in a brutal murder. Uh, I know there was a story a few days ago of a one-ton truck that had been recovered or police recovered it. It was stolen and found in the park. Uh, This is a welcome change in that it sounds like a compromise has been made that people will be able to use the park. And even though it's not ideal to have a tent city in a park, that maybe the two can coexist. Yeah, no, it's, I think it's a very positive thing. You know, the the authorities are, are bringing control back to the situation. It, it makes you wonder why they didn't do this a long time ago. I mean, there was very little resistance to this particular move, and they didn't need to, you know, get an injunction to make this happen. So why didn't this happen back in September or, or you know, July or August? So so there's that question. And, you know, and the, but the fundamental issue is still not enough housing, safe and appropriate housing, for the people residing in, in Strathcona Park. So that's a big challenge. But but I, I'm hearing from many people that this is this is very positive, including Chrissy Brett herself. She, you know, she described this as a positive development and said that she was seeking this kind of security fencing a long time ago. Um, so, yeah, a, a bit of a win-win, seemingly. I'm sure some people don't like it. Um, it remains to be seen if, if everyone clears the, the west side of the park by the 17th. There may be some issues there. I don't know. But... But I think this is generally seen as positive. Yeah, and I think a lot of others might have the same reaction of this. Again, it's not a perfect solution, but if this is a solution that gets people in the neighborhood back and gets this compromise, exactly, why couldn't we have done this weeks or months ago? Yeah, and you know, it goes to show that the governments are re-engaging here, or engaging maybe for the first time meaningfully. Up until now, certainly we've felt very much abandoned. Um, just left to, to deal with this as a neighborhood by ourselves. So it's nice to see the park board reassert some control and authority here and um, pr- provide some order and some space for us to, you know, to enjoy our, you know, regular walks. And there's a low-income uh, seniors home right nearby up until uh, recently couldn't use that park at all or didn't feel safe using that park um, so they can come back into the park. Low-income children often use it for recreational, for camps and, and such, and so that can start to happen again. So it's nice to, 
to, to reclaim some of the, the park space that's, that, was, that was gone for so long. Uh, do you think there will still be issues, though? Again, last time we chatted, you talked about there had been a couple of attempted break-ins uh, while people were home. There's still going to be a criminal element. How do you deal with that part that has made very many of the residents there feel unsafe? Yeah, you know, well, a lot of the petty and property crime has been happening in this neighborhood that for long before the park uh, became an encampment area. So, you know, so that's just something you have to deal with in Strathcona as a resident. Certainly it escalated quite dramatically uh, in the summer when the encampment took took place in, in Strathcona Park. So, you know, I, I think it'll, it'll abate, it'll, it'll lessen again once the, the, the camp is gone, I'm sure, but it'll never go away completely. It's just part and parcel to living so close to the downtown east side and in an area where there's so many vulnerable people. So, um, you know, you, you, you learn to deal with it. You, as a community, you look out for each other. There's all sorts of uh, social media groups to, to alert each other when, when things are happening. And you just hold that you just hope that the authorities respond in a, in a, an appropriate and efficient manner to when you, when you call them for for help. Do you think this will change anything as far as the plan to get housing for everybody who needs it and to clear the park of the tent city by the end of April? I, I hope so. It goes to show, I mean, there wasn't this massive resistance to this particular move. So maybe that bodes well for, for the end of April when, when they're due to move everyone into safe indoor housing. Um, so yeah, it's, it's a good sign. I think um, certainly, you know, talking to people in the park yesterday, they there wasn't a big, you know, uproar or a lot of negativity expressed about it. So, so I think you know that the goal for everyone really is is to get those campers into safe, indoor, and appropriate housing. And if we, if the government achieves that goal, then everything should go smoothly. I would think. You know, there, there's always going to be a few people I think that will need to be compelled to to move along, and mm-hmm. that's just a you know I think an inevitable truth in in this in this city in this in these current circumstances, but. But, you know, government's equipped to do that. And um, and hopefully there's there's less 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 people who are, you know, wish to remain in in Strathcona Park than than take um, indoor housing uh, than than others. All right, Jamie, we'll leave it there. Thanks so much for joining us. And nice to hear something a little more optimistic about that today. Thanks again. Yeah, thank you, Jill. That is Jamie McLaren, Strathcona resident and social justice lawyer. Well, I have a feeling there are going to be a lot of people who relate to this as well. It might not be the most important story of the day, but it is certainly one that has people talking. And it has to do with the thermostat and BC bedrooms. And I can say from personal experience, this is probably the only thing I get into fights about with my significant other. It is the only thing we do not agree. We couldn't be farther apart on what we think the temperature should be in that room. Well, joining me to talk about some new information uncovered by BC Hydro is Senior Media Relations Advisor with BC Hydro, Susie Reeder. Thanks, Susie, so much for being with us. Yeah, thanks for having me, Jill. So just in time for Valentine's Day, good excuse to put this information out there to kind of get the uh, idea, get the pulse of what people are saying when it comes to what should the temperature be in the bedroom? Yeah, so um, we put out a report today and it found that a lot of BC couples can't agree on the bedroom temperature and it's leading to conflict. And in some cases, in 30% of cases, 
conflict has escalated to the point where one person has gone to sleep in a separate bedroom because they find it too hot or cold in the room they're sleeping in with their significant other. So. <laughs> <laughs> wow, that's ta- that's that's taking it to a place where you can't find uh, any common ground or compromise. Yeah, absolutely. And we also found that temperature isn't the only thing that couples don't agree on in the bedroom. I guess that comes as no surprise. But um, a lot of people said that their partner does something during the night that they don't like. The number one being snoring, um, another being hogging the blankets or just taking up too much room, uh, fidgeting or even having a light on, which is something that drives me crazy, even though I wear a sleep mask. (laughs) (laughs) Having that light on and reading for hours is, uh, yeah, when you need to get up at really early, it can be frustrating. (laughs) Yeah, I can can see that. Uh, Mine also, you know what, I just realized I've caught myself in a bit of a lie there. I said the only thing we fight about is is the temperature, which is the main one. And it's not really fighting. I would never get to that level. But also, uh, I'm I'm one that the dogs are allowed to sleep on the bed. I have one dog who's who's an elderly dog, and he has dog dreams all night long to the point where it's it's like a a, a very hard kick that comes at you. And uh, I'm I'm often uh, told, why don't you just put the dog on the floor on his own dog bed? And I say, no. He's, he's very comfortable. He's asleep. It's fine that I'm not getting any sleep. Uh, so, so that might make the list too. Uh, let's talk about the temperature though. So where does it, where, what do people fight about most? And do most people like a warmer bedroom, a cooler bedroom? And how does this work as far as I feel like there's some cost savings to be had here as well? Yeah. So we actually found that most British Columbians like a cooler bedroom. Um, and But what's strange about that is most are actually going to bed with the heat turned up too high. So what we recommend for energy savings is 16 degrees Celsius when you're going to bed in the winter months. That may seem cold to some, but, um, you know, that's our recommendation for, for ultimate energy savings. Um, but we found three quarters are going to bed with that heat pretty high. Um, some as high as 24, 25 degrees. Um, yeah, so pretty hot. And I, I've actually, you know, I've read studies that, your body actually gets better rest in a colder bedroom. Um, I'm not sure if that's true, but it, but it feels true to me in my experience. Um, another thing people are fighting about in terms of temperature, uh, the window being open. So 40% of couples said that they often keep a window in the bedroom open at night. And this is no matter how cold it is outside. So Tonight, for instance, is going to be a cold one. There's going to be a lot of people with their windows open. Um, and this causes fights with, with partners. About 15% said that they fought um, over wanting that fresh air while their partner says, keep it closed. <laughs> so, And I would imagine, too, there's, there's probably some, some people who would keep the window open, but then would also crank the heat. So you're still getting the fresh air, but you're not freezing cold. And that's not going to be great when it comes time to pay the hydro bill. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Like your, your costs are, are going to go up if you have a window open and then you also have the heat cranked up to, to 24 degrees. Um, yeah, so we do recommend the 16 degrees Celsius when you're uh, sleeping or you're away from home. Um, 21 degrees Celsius if you're relaxing around the house and watching TV, so a little bit warmer. And uh, 18 degrees Celsius when you're cooking or doing housework. And um, yeah, those are the recommended temperatures for energy savings. So to see the biggest impact on your bill. And do people, do you, do you see that people, do they preset, if you've got a thermostat, you can preset it for these things or have it, I mean, I, I would imagine that would make it a bit more efficient in that you weren't then constantly having to remember, oh, I'll turn this down to 16 or I should, this is at 18, if you can preset that kind of thing. 
Yeah, so um, once you figure out uh, thermostat compromise with your significant other, a great thing to do is get a programmable thermostat. Um, so this will help keep that temperature um, to the ideal temperature that you've agreed upon and that will be great for savings on your hydro bill. So um, a programmable or smart thermostat will automatically adjust that temperature based on the time of day. You just have to program it. Um, and smart thermostats, so going a step up, um, from that is something called the nest the nest thermostat and that will actually learn your behavior so you don't even have to program it it'll just know okay they like it at 18 degrees celsius in the bedroom at night and it's going to adjust that automatically um and you can even control that like on your smartphone uh, so yeah, it's actually a pretty cool, pretty cool device and money saving as well. I just, I just picture the nest getting so confused <laughs> when it hears people fighting. I, I don't know who to side with. Yeah. <laughs> I side with the dog. <laughs> Give the dog whatever the dog wants. <laughs> um, what about the type of heater? And I know we've talked about this in your house in general that there are ways so you can insulate and make it so if it is a certain temperature to keep that temperature. Does it matter kind of the type of of heater you're using as well? Well, we, we do always warn that base, electric baseboard heating can be quite costly. Um, so you can see uh, heating go up to about 50% of your BC Hydro bill in the fall and winter months. So, you know, that's why we do recommend the ideal temperature of 16 degrees Celsius when you go to bed, especially if you have baseboard heaters. Um, another thing, yeah, just make sure that you have proper insulation. Um, I actually have a like a window in my bedroom that had so much cold air coming in but once I weather strip it I have like I noticed a difference right away um so doing that weather stripping um also window film you can put on your windows to keep in the heat um and window coverings you'd be surprised what a curtain or some really good well insulated blinds will do um to help keep the heat in and if that all fails and people are still fighting uh, is it it's either those separate bedrooms or at least separate duvets Yes, separate duvets, um, you know, if you're cold, maybe wear, you know, more pajamas. Um, yeah, get some footy pajamas or something. There's, there's lots of things that, that you can figure out and do um, to ease the temperature battles. <laughs> All right, Susie, we'll <laughs> leave it there. Thanks so much for joining us to talk about this today. Thank you. Bye. Bye-bye. That is Susie Reeder, Senior Media Relations Advisor with BC Hydro. I'll put my hand up for the window open and fully admit, last night was the first night I shut the window and I did so reluctantly. I was not happy about it.